Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Dr. Gene Boresson. And I'm Dr. Steve Schlossman. And we're child psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Here's what we'll talk about today. Today we're going to talk about, I think, probably something that scares us and parents in particular more than just about anything else, and that's uh, suicide. Uh, suicide is the second leading cause of death in youth age 20, 18 to 26. And what's really scary is that the, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, just came out with a new report that looked at the rates of suicide between 1999 and 2014. And it was 94 to 2014. Not that it matters. But oh, ni- what did I say? 99. That's oh. okay. It's just, it's a longer period of time. And that's actually well, even more interesting. Yeah. So between 1994 and 2014, it increased in all of the population by 24%. Since 1999. Yeah. Since 1999. So now what was really scary is that there was a 200% increase in girls who were 10 to 14 years old, and there was also a really big spike in suicides in, in middle-aged women, age 45 to 64, and that was a 63% rise since 1999. They also showed that there was an increase for boys and men, but not nearly as high as for girls and women, and rates were also shown to decrease in firearms, but increased in suffocation. And you know what? It's easy to swim in all these numbers. So it's a lot of numbers. Let's let's take ourselves away from the statistics and just state the trend here, which is it has increased during a time when we've in fact become more aware of mental illness, more aware of the risks of suicide, and we actually have more services available through the still imperfect but nevertheless present parity acts. Nevertheless, the rates have gone up, and we owe it to ourselves and to our patients and to everybody that we know to try and understand why this is. So what might be the risk factors? Well, so let's, let's look at some of the data that the CDC's gathered for us. Every year they do the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. The most recent data is from 2013. Um, so it's not every year, obviously, but it's done on a fairly regular and recurring basis. What they're looking at there are various behaviors that kids engage in that we would see as uh, somewhat risky to their overall health. And it's not necessarily centered only on suicide, although suicide is one of the things they ask about. They'll ask about whether you ride a bike with or without a helmet, how often you get into a physical fight, do you carry a weapon, do you use drugs, do you use alcohol, how often have you experienced bullying or, or inappropriate sexual behavior. When they've looked at suicide, though, you do see a spike that we haven't seen in previous youth risk behavior survey data. Um, we, there's a 30% increase among kids who just say they feel sad or hopeless almost every day for two or more weeks um, than they did during normal activities. So what that means is you've got kids out there. And remember, these are community samples. These are not clinical samples. You've got kids out there. When you say community samples, what, what, what these aren't people who wander into your office. It's, it's, are, it's a random sample they of, of 20,000 20, students from all over the country in all different large cities, small cities, rural areas. And they're very careful to make sure that it's a swath that's representative of right. the country so it's not just rural and rural. And these and are self-report. So yeah. we have we have to say that these are what high school kids tell us. 
and they say some pretty scary things. And every ounce, by the way, of data that we have about self-reports in kids is they tend to under-report, not over-report. So if anything, we can assume that the numbers are higher than what this data Right. Yields. So so when they said that 18% uh, – when 18% of these students said that they actually thought seriously about attempting suicide um, and that 8 during point, a tw- During the previous 12-month period. During the previous 12-month, during the previous year, and that almost 9% – actually made a plan, actually not only made a plan, but attempted suicide. So 9% reported that they actually tried to kill themselves. That's pretty, that's pretty striking. It is. And again, it's probably an under-report rather than an overestimation of, of what they said that they did over the last year. And, and, you know, there are some things that have stayed consistent, which it's important to note. Um, girls still consider suicide more often than boys, but boys um, will kill themselves more often than girls. We still see that, but the overall number of girls who are either attempting and also dying by suicide, that's increased. Yeah. And we do know some clear risk factors. So, for example, if you're a boy, if you've made prior attempts, if you have a family history of suicide, if you've got depression, wait, wait, wait. A family history of are you saying there's like a genetic component, not to the diseases that lead to suicide, but to the suicide itself? Well, I, I don't think that suicide is programmed genetically, but I think that, for example, suicides tend to run in families. Some families have clusters more than others. Now, that may be that's gen- fact. That's fact. Okay. Now, what factors go into that are really interesting. I think my own hunch is, and you may. To supplement this, but uh, we know that mood disorders run in, in, in families. So if you have depression or bipolar disorder, that may lead to it. We know that certain addictive disorders or substance use disorders run in families. That may contribute to it. We know that certain families are under massive amounts of stress because they're, they're in so low socioeconomic uh, status. They're living in poverty. They uh, may not have uh, the access to you know, uh, some of the privileges that, that other families have. And so, uh, you know, and there may be families that have a history of, of violence. So a lot of these things, some are biological, some are social, some are, you know, it's all both. over the map. Some are both. So the bottom line is, whether this is a biologically inherited behavior or whether this is an uh, environmentally forced behavior or whether it's a little bit of both, like an epigenetic behavior, Epigenetic, what do you mean by that? By that, I mean certain environmental stressors uh, lead to gene expression that then gets passed on through our DNA. Okay, to translation, we all have genes and we all have certain vulnerabilities. So some of us may be predisposed to diabetes. Some of us may be predisposed to asthma. Some of us may be predisposed to depression. Interestingly, not everybody in every family has diabetes, asthma, depression, or anxiety, but the trigger that sets that gene off to make someone asthmatic or depressed is what Steve means, what you mean by epigenetic. That right. means triggered by the environment. Triggered by the environment. And, and this is not news to anybody. No, this, we is, know this, that, is, this is common knowledge. Right. People get asthma. They live in a dusty apartment. We know that. So that's why there's higher rates of asthma in lower socioeconomic right. groups, um, especially in urban centers. Yeah. So the biggest risk factors overall are being male still, yep. especially among kids. A previous attempt is a huge risk factor. Yep. The more bizarre or unusual the attempt, the greater the risk factor. Um, and a mood disorder. 
greased with substance abuse. Right. So if you add substance abuse to a mood disorder, you disinhibit what might otherwise be a behavior that people would avoid or at least have a little bit longer to think about. And then there are others that are also factors. For example, a history of sexual or physical abuse. There's some data that LGBT youth uh, are at higher risk. Certainly, there's data that that youth that have post-traumatic stress disorder, whether it's because of a history of sexual or physical abuse, or young adults that are coming out of of the military, you know, uh, with PTSD, have a have a higher risk of suicide than the general population. Let's just take a second here to talk about guns, um, yep. and this is not a political moment at all. And I it just drives me nuts when people hear it this way. We know, even though you we. You mentioned from this data that the rates of suicide have decreased from guns and gone up from suffocation. We still know that guns are the most robust, independent predictor of suicide, of anything. And right. that, that statistic continues to hold very true. When we are asking a family that's come into our office whether they have a firearm, we're not doing it because we're opposed to firearms. We might be, but that's not why we're asking. We might not be, too. Right. We're asking because it's a legitimate risk factor in the same way that smoking is a risk factor for cancer. You and, ask and, because it's and, preventive medicine. And what medicine. we may want to ask also, in addition to asking if there are firearms in the household, is how are they kept? Are, are they, they secure? Are they kept under lock and key? Are there safeties with the firearms? Is the ammunition separate from the gun? Do, do you basically yeah. train your your family to use the firearms in a responsible fashion and do you, and do you, and do you hide them away and so, lock them up? So in some states, Florida is the most obvious one where they've actually made it illegal for physicians to ask this question. Physicians are often ignoring this and I would, I would support that. I know that sounds like I'm supporting not following the law. But in this instance, you, I think, as a physician, have an obligation to practice preventive medicine, and this so, is a form of it. So it may be it may be that the Brady Bill and other and other legislation that's actually put more restrictions on, say, handguns, may have had a factor in this. But you know, Steve, maybe you could talk about some other things that have not so much legislation, but what about? What about the black box warning so let's, yeah. on antidepressants? Because that's another factor in society, like 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 restrictions on firearms that may have had an impact on suicide. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And we've talked about that on this on this podcast format, and also written about it before. But to remind people, the black box is a, it's the highest level of warning that the FDA attributes to a prescribed FDA medicine. FDA is the Food, the and, Drug food and Drug Administration. Administration. Basically, the black box says we're still allowing this medicine to be marketed. We're still allowing people to prescribe it, but it comes with a severe warning that says, please consider every possible alternative other than taking it. Black boxes are big deals. Black boxes are almost never reversed once they're placed on a medicine. And the black box warning was applied first to paroxetine or Paxil, which is an antidepressant, in 2004, I believe, following the British equivalent of the same. Basically, suggesting through um, some data that there was an increased rate of agitation leading to suicide among people well, who take Well, leading to suicidal thinking. There were no absolute – there were no suicidal deaths you know, There were no reported deaths no reported in the FDA studies. Right. There were reported deaths in the United Kingdom. Right. Regardless – what happened following that black box warning was a precipitous decline in the prescribing of SSRIs. By about a third. By about a third to uh, kids and adults who suffered from depression. Before that, we had the tricyclic antidepressants. Those have very narrow, narrow therapeutic margins. So people – Very narrow therapy. Meaning you could take more, slightly more than you're supposed to take and kill yourself. 
it was awfully hard to kill yourself by overdosing on the SSRIs. So people were comfortable prescribing it. And you can look at the suicide rate coming down in 1985 with the beginning of fluoxetine or Prozac, uh, which some people say is because we were more willing as a culture to prescribe the medicine because it was safer. Then the black box warning came along, gave the impression, maybe uh, somewhat true, but I think much exaggerated by that black box, that it wasn't so safe. People stopped prescribing it, and the suicide rate went up. Yeah, and and there's been a lot of research to show that there is a direct correlation between the decrease in prescribing antidepressants, because many physicians were afraid of, of doing that because of this warning, and an increase in suicide. And this is regional data, so you can look throughout the United States and look at how often SSRIs are prescribed and then look at the suicide rate and it lines up in a very scary way. And you know what's what's interesting to me, uh, Steve, about this is that doctors prescribe medications (laughs) willy-nilly that are very much more dangerous than antidepressants. So for example, you take your kid with poison ivy to, to, to the pediatrician and they prescribe a high dose of uh, prednisone, prednisone. prednisone for poison ivy. Now, we know that with prednisone, there's about over 40 milligrams a day and there's much higher doses than that. There's about a 20% chance of delirium, of psychosis, of depression, of you know crazy behavior. Antibiotics. Bactrim. Bactrim. The, the rate of having... A severe allergic reaction, even with anaphylaxis, meaning you know closing up of the airways, or or Stevens Johnson, in which your skin skin falls off with a rash, um, is much higher than with antidepressants. And yet these drugs and Lipitor, many adults are taking Lipitor and other statins for their high cholesterol, and that can have serious effects on the liver and on the muscle. So it's interesting that many of the medications that we're prescribing across the board for other conditions have a much more worrisome profile than the antidepressants. And I think it's stigma because, you know, the the authorities might say, well, we're monitoring these statins like Lipitor and we monitor prednisone and we monitor antibiotics. Well, when was the last time that your pediatrician or your internet said, oh, by the way, how are you doing on your antibiotics? It almost never happens as if we don't monitor antidepressants. We actually do. So, So let's just take a step back here. If you hear the frustration and anger in our voice, it's because it's there, because we've seen this in real time in our patients and our practices. But the way to fix it is probably not to yell the way we're yelling on this podcast. No. The way to fix it is actually to help people to feel more comfortable asking about it. Right. There is still the false belief that's even taught within medical schools that asking about suicide can make somebody suicidal. And that's just not true. So let me just switch gears and stop screaming. Because why is this trend increasing? Because it can't just be the antidepressants. So what are other things that are going on in society that may have increased the suicide rate? A couple things that I'm thinking about, we know that copycat phenomena occurs. In other words, when adolescents hear about suicides, either in the news or radio, TV, can even be a fictional suicide. And they can even be dramatic suicides of, of, you know, it doesn't have to be Kurt Cobain or Robin Williams. It can be somebody, you know, that's in a dramatic series. There's about a two-week window in which suicides increase. Now, what worries me is that with the increase of social media and digital media, the rate of dissemination of information is extraordinarily powerful. So copycat might be one thing. Another thing that worries me is we know that bullying 
in the long run, increases risks of depression, anxiety, and suicide. Suicide attempts. And it's easier to bully with social media. Exactly. So, for example, we don't know the long range impact of social media on vulnerable kids that would actually uh, potentially begin to be suicidal by using, you know, their smartphones. But again, don't you think all of this leads to this final common pathway of helping parents and primary care doctors, they're the ones who see kids most often in these settings, and teachers and, you know, guidance counselors, to feel more comfortable just directly asking? Exactly. So what? So getting to asking, we as doctors need to be asking more and parents need to be asking more. And so what tips can we provide parents about asking about some of the things that could potentially lead to suicidal thinking or behavior? Um, I think, first of all, just to ask, yeah. I mean, which sounds really silly, but you, you're going to get pushed back. Well, you know, many parents will say, if I ask about it, I may put the bug in there in their head to do it and I may cause them to commit suicide. Doesn't work that way. Um, it, it, it's been looked at. There's obviously, you're not going to do a study where you ask some and don't ask others and see who becomes suicidal. We can't do that kind of controlled study. But in naturalistic studies, the families that talk about this, the pediatricians who ask about it, the guidance counselors, the yeah. psychiatrists, the people who investigate decrease the overall rate of suicide. So if you see changes in your kid, if your kid looks more depressed, and with teenagers, it may be irritability, it may be that they're withdrawing, it may be that their grades or interests are dropping – Ask. I would take it a step further. You don't have to see changes. I think it's okay just to check in. I think these are vulnerable years, and it's worth just checking How in you with feeling? your kid. Yeah. And yeah. have you ever thought about it? Yeah. It, there's nothing wrong with that. Throwing, throwing in the towel. And certainly if you have a family history, and certainly that family history is known to yeah. your child, you you should ask. And the other thing for parents is to get is to get good information about depression and suicide and risk factors. So, you know, we at the Clay Center have a number of posts and podcasts about this. And I think that parents who are interested should take it upon themselves to just kind of cruise our website and take a look at a a lot of the the, the really good information we have besides this podcast about depression, suicide, and other risk factors. Yep. I think the other thing we should do is uh, help parents to feel more comfortable not looking the other way when they see high-risk behaviors. And finally, I think, you know, the kids out there, I mean, high school, college kids should um, take some action themselves. So, for example, SAD, Students Against Destructive uh, Decisions, is present in in maybe 10,000 high schools around the country. So there's groups that you can actually join that can help you kind of understand what kind of behaviors, feelings, actions might be directing you in a certain direction that you don't want to take. You can learn more about dangerous behavior, not just by cruising the web, but going to reputable websites. I mean, what are some of the websites that, you know, that, the, that kids can go to? Um, well, there is, there's actually a special section for kids at the ACAP website, the American Academy of Child and Psychiatry. There's a special website on the National Association for Prevention of Suicide. There's also one, I think, on the NAMI website. Yeah, so, NAMI is the National Alliance for Mentally right. Ill. There are many, many resources. I think you start by asking your pediatrician. Yeah. Well, I hope this was helpful for everybody out there. I know this is a really tough topic, but it's really an important one, and we should keep our our eye on this. I'm Gene Bereson. And I'm Steve Schlossman. Thanks very much.